0: Welcome to the Course in the Chaos Special Edition mailbag episode. Uh, This is the final episode of season one. We've did a whole series of episodes themed around the church. And over the past several weeks, we've petitioned our listeners through, obviously, the podcast, through the Facebook page, email, whatever else. said, if you've got questions about some of the content that we covered over the past, you know, 12 some odd episodes, whatever the number was. Uh, send them in and we would we would compile them and do our best to answer them and that is the podcast you're on so if you if you're listening to the mailbag episode and you've not listened to the others uh i don't know what to tell you 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 might be maybe you'll find it beneficial maybe you want to go back and listen maybe neither i don't know i don't know but what i do know is this is the mailbag episode. yes that's what i do know so yes um but before we do that, uh, a couple things. I just thought I'd share this because I found this out today. Spotify was kind enough to send me some statistics kind of wrapping up. And I was pretty, pretty surprised by this. So um, I shared this on the Facebook page earlier today. So some of you may have seen this if you follow us there. But uh, apparently our podcast, we started it in August, is in the top 10% of all pod most followed podcasts, which is pretty incredible. Uh, considering we've only been doing this a few months and our podcast was in the top 15% most shared globally. And it lists a whole bunch. It was like a pie chart there of different ways through text and links and social media, whatever. So just a couple statistics. So yeah, my mind is yeah, blown guys, by that. You guys are I, awesome.
1: Thank you for listening.
2: Yes. Yeah. Thank
0: you very much. It's just tremendous. So th- thank you for listening. Um, and the second thing I want to cover by way of introduction, just, Maybe we st- step back and reflect. What, what do you guys, how do you think this guy, how do you think, think this went, guys? I mean, season one, any thoughts kind of looking back over the past dozen episodes? Or I've so? had a lot
1: of fun with you, brothers. Uh, it has been, yeah, a, it has been a privilege. Uh, I hope that it's been beneficial uh, to the listeners. It's been encouraging to my own heart. Even if we recorded these things and studied them and talked about them and had some laughs and had some, you know, all those things, it would have been beneficial to me, personally, if it never even hit the the, the airwaves, if you will. So uh, thank you guys for bringing yeah. me along on this. I, I do count it a privilege.
0: Yeah, s- same here. I, I've learned a lot, you know, chatting with these things with you guys. And l- like you, Blake, if none of this were ever on a official public podcast or whatever, it's been a blessing just to, to sit and chat, discuss the things mm-hmm. of the Lord. And it has been a genuine benefit to my soul.
2: Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure just to sit and talk with you guys. I'm still kind of amazed that people actually care to listen. Um, so thank you guys again, just sincerely for all the times that you guys have downloaded, shared it, all that kind of stuff. It's um, it's fun for us to do, right? We get to laugh and we get to, to be able to talk about things that we love to talk about. Yeah. Um, but we're we're actually just, uh, for lack of any better way to put it, tickled that other people. Enjoy the same thing. And tickled probably not the word that I could have used there, but that's what I went with. With all
1: the words <laughs>
2: available, you chose tickled. Well, I mean, I'm like a 50 year old man on the inside of my soul, so some of these, uh, you know, words that I will use are going to just be throwbacks to old phrases. Yeah, I think it's like tickled pink or something like that was uh, right. The official full phrase. Yeah, I don't know. So, side thing, and then we'll jump into question <laughs> one here. My,
0: my grandpa is 96 wow. years old, and something he says all the time, and I've started recently saying it. I used to think it was the goofiest phrase when I was a kid, but if something was funny, something is not funny, it's comical. You go, oh, that was comical. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was comical. You don't even laugh. That, that was like his phrase. That was comical. Are you saying it ironically yeah.
1: or unironically? Yeah,
0: Unironically, right. like... Instead yeah. of saying, oh, that was right. hilarious, you'd say, that yeah. was comical.
2: One of the things I noticed that I started to do, I mean, literally right away when I had kids, and this is like 12 years ago, so I was still young, 21 years old, I would get up off of things and I'd be like, "Ah," and just do the dad grunt, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, nothing's sore, yeah. nothing's wrong. It's in the handbook, But I'm though. just like, oh, yeah, and I still do it to this day, and I'm not sore but it's just like a, a force of habit at this it's point. It's all now. a big show. I've, I've, yeah. I've coasted yeah.
1: into. Yeah. That's pretty common. Now your children have started yelling. We know you're not in pain, dad.
0: <laughs> that is a great segue to question five one. minutes in great segue. <laughs> yeah. Se- question one comes from, and I'm some of these names. So if you sent, oh, let me say this. If you sent the question in through email or through a message, I just assumed you might want the question to be anonymous, so we're not going to say your name. If you posted it on the public, public page, um, I'm going to assume yeah. you don't care. If you subscribe so, to our premium content, um,
1: we'll release the names. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you get all the names in the premium content. Um, question one comes from, and if I say your name wrong, I'm sorry. It's Omelette Blake's fault. Uh, Bradley Bergen. Bradley asked, what can a pastor do to avoid burnout? And I guess, I guess the question for for the
2: pastors: How do you get burned out working one day a week? Yeah. I don't. I mean, it's pretty tough. When I get up and <laughs> preach on a Sunday, I'm literally just winging it yeah. the whole time. You gotta so. just let off the. <laughs> That's c- the first <laughs> yeah. time I've even looked at that passage.
0: Right. Yeah, my que- my comment was a joke, by the way. I hope somebody laughed. Uh, but I'm gonna let the <laughs> pastors respond to that because I am not a pastor, and I work. Five days a week, not one. So, right. right, not really. Jack. Jack's we should be asking how job. Jack doesn't burn out <laughs> working a full week. So I'm going to let you guys respond to this. So, what, what can you? What advice can you guys give? Brad? The uh,
1: the statistics on pastoral burnout are wild. I mean, just wild. How many men just say, "I'm out. I'm, I'm dipping." Uh, for, for various reasons. So this is like a huge subject, uh, that we can't possibly, uh, you know, that we can't possibly describe just even one podcast. I don't think we'd have to dedicate a whole episode to it. Uh, and then the other really thing is Grace and I are both young guys, uh, relatively. And then, so also relatively, we've been in ministry, a uh, shorter amount of times I and mean, we haven't put in yeah, 50 60 70 years. So I wouldn't describe myself I've even
2: been in less time than you. Yeah,
1: so I wouldn't describe myself as burnout and then Grayson I know isn't wouldn't describe himself as as burnout either. And so a lot of this is just from what we know, what we've been told, what we see in scripture, what you know, wiser men than us that have gone on further down the path than us have warned us about um I'm sure you've experienced that Grayson like guys Yep. you know, giving, you know, advice of like, hey, you need to, you know, these are some things you need to watch out for and all of that. So do you want
2: to start, Grayson, or do you want me to? Um, I can give a, a quick couple of ones and just ones that I found uh, helpful for my own pastor, um, right? He has, one of the big things is he's just said, you build in specific time where you can rest. You know, it doesn't have to be, on a Saturday or a Sunday after you get done preaching, you know, because oftentimes what happens is people get freed up on the weekend and that's when they're free to meet or in the evenings. Um, but you have to work around that and you have to be able to work with your family in that too, if you have one. So his point of counsel was just find those days that work for you well and actually build in intentional rest and build in that family time. Um, I mean, we, we know that principle comes straight from scripture, right? God created it and then he rested. Uh, so my, my point is simple with that too. If you're a pastor, you're going to be working a ton of hours. They're going to be crazy hours oftentimes. Um, you might have some seasons that are busier than others, but still find time intentionally to put rest in because you need it. You're not Superman. And um, even as a young guy, like I have a lot of energy, but I know that I still get tired. So if I don't take a day off, that's not a, a good thing. Um, another quick, simple one. This one is just more practical in terms of reading. So you read a lot of books. You're going to be listening to a lot of material. Um, my free, cheap advice is if you can find something engaging, fiction-wise that you enjoy, to intersperse that in between those things. Um, it was a tip that I picked up in seminary. Where, I mean, you're spending four or five, six hours at a crack in a single book and I would just take 10 to 15 minutes at a time, open up a book of fiction and read that for a little bit. And it was almost like a reset to where I could go back to my heavier books and start reading again. And I found that just helped break it up a bit. Um, Other times I'd get up and do some push-ups or go run around the gym, whatever it took to just get my mind off of the books for a little bit. And then I can go back to it because oftentimes you're under a crunch. Um, you know, let's say you're preparing a sermon, you've got a funeral the same week or a wedding that same week, um, counseling issues that are creeping up. It can be hard sometimes to just literally plant your butt in the seat and process a, a sermon that you're working through for 10 hours straight. Um, so find something that you can break it up a little bit in small chunks. That's just a practical tidbit. Yeah. So those are just two quick ones Blake what do you what do you have
1: Uh I've got a, a 8 point sermon actually
2: Yeah well I'm trying to keep it short I'm not All right here we go They're <laughs> like oh boy that that was short from him <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, a, a couple of things, and again, I, I know Grayson would agree with these things as well, and I and I am in agreement with what what Grayson said. Um, again, just things that we that we have heard, and then we are implementing and passing on to others. So, number one thing, and this should go without saying, but unfortunately, it's not: is you need to have a vibrant personal relationship with Christ. It is so easy for you to open up God's word with the mindset of, I, am, I have to prepare a sermon here, or I have to prepare a lesson here, and to actually open God's word without asking, God, what would you have for me in this? Not, you know, not necessarily looking for uh, the, the structure of the text or how you can pull three bullet, you know, alliterated bullet points out and things like that, but actually to say, God, change me through your word. And I think it's very important that you open up God's word and you get into God's word apart from the normal study that you have to do. And so I have put that into practice Uh, And I have found that to be very, very, very beneficial, along with, of course, studying the passage that I'm preaching on uh, that week. Um, I was told by a church planter uh, by the name of Claire Jewell. Claire, if you're listening, I can't believe you're listening, but thank you for being here. Uh, Claire told me years and years ago, the best thing that you have to offer your church uh, is not your talent, it's not your personality, it is a healthy relationship with Christ. If you have a healthy relationship with Christ, uh, that will be one of the primary benefits of grace uh, to your local congregation as a pastor. Uh, also, uh, you also need to assess, um, if you're if you're getting into where you feel like you're starting to get burnt out, uh, there does need to be an assessment of uh, sinful, potential sinful attitudes in your own heart. So maybe, uh, dear brother, you have a martyr complex. Uh, maybe you view yourself as, as irreplaceable, and so you have to get all these things done because nobody else is going to do it. Uh, maybe there are some uh, sinful points of, of despair and, and things like that that are... Dragging you toward burnout that actually are just attitudes that need to be actually dealt with. Um, avoiding burnout, you you need to learn to say no. Um, this is particularly difficult. Uh, I, I think if you're in a small church and there's only, you know, one elder, if you're like the primary, you know, preaching pastor, you're the one guy on staff. Things like that. There can be a lot of pressure uh, on you to uh, go along with, you know, different ideas and things like that. And lots of people will come up to you and they'll have different directions they want to go, different things. Um, And and learning to say no is a good thing and it's a right thing. Uh, I remember when I first started, I had a guy uh, come up to me and he said, I really think we should start a Spanish ministry. You know, spoiler alert, I don't speak Spanish. And coincidentally, this guy didn't speak Spanish either, you know, and I was like, yeah, you know, that's kind of actually, that's, that's kind of a cool idea. We have lots of Spanish folks in our community, you know, let me, let me think about that. So I saw this guy the, the next week and he asked me, um, what steps have you taken toward the, getting the Spanish ministry started? And I'm like, uh, 0 point zero steps i mean i don't know i didn't know that we had voted on you know getting this thing (laughs) getting this thing going (laughs) and so actually being able um when things come up being able to say no uh, protecting your time which grayson uh you know brought up you know protecting time with your family uh protecting time to study protecting time to rest you can't do everything and you need to remember that you're not god you can't do everything Uh, And so we need to be relying on him, of course, in all points of of these ministry aspects. Again, uh, you're not irreplaceable. That's uh, one of the wonderful truths of the local church is that uh, the work of God just rolls on. It just keeps going. Um, And all of us are wonderfully replaceable. And I think that's actually a point of praise. That if I'm going to get if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, which I hope does not happen, um, this is where you insert. By the time that this podcast was released, Blake was indeed hit by a truck. <laughs> yeah. um, no, um, you know that that the work of of Christ continues to go on in our community. So you're not irreplaceable. You're not the only guy. Uh, You need to learn to delegate, which can be a scary thing, of course, uh, because when you hand something off, there's always the risk that someone will drop the ball uh, and things like that. And so moving beyond uh, having to have your fingers and everything and delegating and letting people actually serve and grow in ministries and coming alongside them, it's difficult. Surely it's difficult, uh, but it can also be very rewarding. Um, It's important to have friends. Uh, People that you can talk to about the things that you're struggling with. Um, Other, you know, brothers in ministry, if you're not connected, I would say seek them out uh, that you can actually have uh, a frank conversation with them without fear of uh, it being thrown back at you. You can lay your heart before them. They can be praying with you. They can be encouraging you. They can even be rebuking you uh, if need be. And so a good godly friendship, of course, is important. And, uh, you know, we need to be looking to Christ, again, as our primary example. We see Christ doing all kinds of things in ministry. Uh, We see him sacrificially giving of himself. But then along with that, uh, you see Christ breaking away and praying. You see Christ breaking away and resting. You see Christ doing all of these things. And again, if Christ is doing that, then am I more righteous than Christ where I would say, well, I can't rest or I don't have time to pray or something like that. That's crazy person talk. Don't say that. Uh, Do what the master does and uh, be wise in your time and then obviously seek God's will in everything you do. So, that's all theoretical yeah, say, uh, young pastor talk in there. <laughs>
2: well, a, a key component my pastor has talked about multiple times is literally just being able to raise up more leaders, too. Yeah. So, as you get other faithful men around you, uh, other faithful elders, other faithful servants, um, you get key people in ministry positions that could lead and delegate it as well. Yeah. It makes everything else much, much easier. Right. So, and then you're able to keep your fingers in something in terms of having a pulse on it, right. but you don't have to worry about... Every little detail. Oh, now yeah, the copier right. is jammed. Or, <laughs> right, right. Or, you know. Right. It, he was telling me the other day about somebody who, um, they, as a pastor, were managing their own print shop in the middle of the church because they had to... Now it was their job to print banners, and it always it fell on their responsibility. So Friday night comes along, somebody needs like a... 30-foot banner, and the guy's like, I got a sermon to write. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's... Yeah. That's something. And when you look at the primary, you know, like the primary duties of an elder, too, which we've talked about that, and you can go back in our podcasts, and we've, we've mentioned some of these things, too. I mean, talking about, you know, the, the praying and the preaching of the word, a um, couple of things. Jack's given us the time
2: sign. Well, I was going to say that actually bleeds into another question. Nice. So, nice Jack, we can just <laughs> yeah. segue right in there.
0: Yeah, sorry. I just, we've got a lot of questions that we're trying to go
1: through. Um, so, I'm sorry, Bradley, that we didn't
2: get to talk about your question all the way,
1: but Jack wants to move <laughs> on.
2: Bradley's probably just like, you know, after about three minutes, I was good. Yeah.
1: I started tuning he out. Was I was like, with oh, Jack. Okay. I was just tuning skip, out. Skip. Yeah. <laughs> Next question, Anonymous. Question two.
0: Yeah, next question. Uh, This comes from Anonymous. What's up with the Christian community not preaching widow care as frequent as other biblical relational instructions? MacArthur has an excellent series on it, but it seems like in general there's a great ignorance that's affecting widows
2: of the church. Yeah, so we we talked about this briefly, and um, I was surprised. Um, at the same time, I'm not. I mean, Blake, you mentioned it. It's like if you have regular expositional preaching, at some point, um, widow care or orphan care, all those different aspects of practical Christianity should come up naturally as you're going verse by verse through the text. And so, um, you know, if, if there's a particular instance as to why in her lo- this person's locale, I don't necessarily know. Um, broader church-wise, though, I'd... I think that you would probably actually find a decent amount that you could find recorded online. Um, I know plenty of faithful pastors who have preached through pass or through texts like First Timothy, and so they've already they've dealt with those texts exegetically. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah,
1: and maybe I mean, and maybe take some time and and you know read those things, go online, listen to those sermons and stuff like that, and you know you might be the person in your church that God really puts uh you know it seems like a concern uh to you uh anonymous individual, uh so you know you may be the person that uh, god is is really working in, like, hey, we really need to be ministering to the widows, and maybe God would use you uh in in that way um and so some of these things are being laid on your heart. Yeah, the materials are definitely out there. It's just not it, it's it by the nature of it like so many things in scripture, it's not something you're going to hear about every Sunday. Now, there's a problem if your pastor is, you know, obviously Purposely dancing around the widow issue, uh, we're going to yeah. skip these. We're going to skip these or, texts about the widows, <laughs> and we're going to move on to other things. But again, in regular expository preaching, um, it's going to come up. It just maybe not as frequently uh, as as you might want.
0: Yeah. An- another issue is that if your pastor is a widow, that's a that's a big issue. That's a problem too. Also, <laughs> that's a big issue for another. Podcast.
2: I also think of. I mean, MacArthur has been preaching for what almost. Fifty five years. <laughs> Blake's giving me the time signal. I'm just gonna say it, all right? Mr. Monologue. Over I just here. wanted to beat Jack to it. <laughs> all right. So MacArthur's been preaching for you know a tremendous amount of time and he's made his way through the entire New Testament expositionally. So I think for some people they just haven't had that long of a ministry yet. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. And if you That's go to grace to and you look at MacArthur's sermons, chances are, it's like, okay, he preached about it in 84. He preached about it in 96 and he preached about yeah. it last year. <laughs> you know, So again, it may not be yeah. something that comes up yeah. super frequently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good, good question though. Uh, question three. Uh, I thought this was an interesting question is, and it comes from Sean Meadows underscore 1517. Is the job of a pastor different now that it was in the first few centuries? Due to the higher rate of literacy, people are better able to read their Bibles and discern doctrine. Does that change a pastor's job to shepherd their flock? Um, I'll just say no, I don't think so. I'll I'll take a stab at this one and you guys can tell me I'm wrong or right, but I don't think so. I don't think it changes the, the role or the job of the pastor. Ultimately, it's a calling. Um, it is a spiritual gifting and a calling and enablement from God. And I don't think that that's changed from one century to the next. Um, the, if anything, there are more tools available mm-hmm. to pastors and mm-hmm. people now. But how the spirit works, how God enables, calls, glorifies, justifies, the process of salvation, the order of the church, the structure of the church, the offices of the church, by the grace of God, they're the same and they should be. Um, so, I, I, literacy—I don't think it changes that. Um, I think it's a blessing. Obviously, a blessing. I mean, the Reformation was was uh, a large a response in, in many ways to the people being able to access yeah. the Bible, right, 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 in common languages. That that was a big component of driving the Reformation. Um, so, I, but I don't think that changes the pastor's job. If anything, I I think it uh, it's it's been a, a grace and a gift to the church and. Maybe has aided the pastor to uh, to uh, to communicate the truth of the gospel to those people, which was flock.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I mean, uh, you might have different dynamics and based on the culture and the time and all the different things that are available to yeah. us. I mean, no, in no point in history has it been easier to propagate heresy, right? Um, at the same time, in no point in history has it been easier to propagate biblical truth, and so. Uh, aspects like that might be different, but the role of a pastor yeah. uh, or a shepherd never changes. Right, yeah.
1: Your duty as an under-shepherd to yeah. lead, feed, guide, and protect uh, isn't going to be changed based on um, availability of uh, of Scripture. Yeah.
0: Yeah, good question.
2: Uh, Grayson, you want to take number four? Um, yeah. Sorry, I was already going to question number five. I like that one. Uh, number four, though, do deacons as an office or position hold any authority in the decision-making of a church? An example, can we see a parallel of elders and deacons like Congress? And that comes from Baron Bronco. I mean, people are going to maybe differ on this one, but I would say no. Um, a deacon, the actual term from Scripture is just they're a servant. It's diaconos, and all that means is that they are literally fulfilling a position of servitude, Now, there might be some different ecclesial practices for, you know, I don't know how you would necessarily understand that as a Presbyterian, Jack, uh, because I know that there's, you know, specifics in terms of how they're voted in and everything like that within a Presbytery. Um, But for how I understand it, they are servants, and they don't have necessarily decision-making powers as an elder would, especially because pastorally, the qualifications are very different in those letters um, so if they have a delegated authority or delegated decision making process, sure. Um, but again, that would be a delegation on the basis of the elders authority. Okay, I'd agree I would agree
1: with that because yeah I was I was reading it as, well, you know is there any but I like that that terminology of the delegated authority. I think that that works for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that uh, largely again, we're going to come we have a different a little bit different polity. As a Presbyterian in the way we would understand or I would understand that and Presbyterians would understand that is the deacons do have some decision making authority in the church related to the physical and administrative needs of the church. However, even those are granted to them by the eldership, like they serve under the leadership of the elders. So, right. um, it's it's a it's a division of of roles. Like they're they're responsible for the physical, and elders are going to be responsible for the spiritual. Uh, but ultimately, the church is run right. by. So it's not like going to work like Congress. And, the example that such. was used, it's not it, it's yeah. not the same. Right, right. not the same. Thing. Yeah, there's not checking out vote the other. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, good question though. Uh, number five, Grayson's favorite question. Uh, question I've been wrestling with. This comes from Josh Lumley, good friend. Um, Jesus entered the temple and flipped over tables, grabbed a whip and drove the money changers out. Should we do the same with people like Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes? Uh, Point of correction.
1: Jesus didn't grab the whip. He makes the whip. He fashioned it. He makes it. Uh, I think what we have here is, so a lot of times this is portrayed as, you know, Jesus is just flying off the handle but it's not that. It's a very calculated. Uh, it's a very calculated move that he's making. I mean, he's
2: keep just. Can you just picture him just very serenely, patiently braiding the cord <laughs> of the whip that he's gonna just lash these guys. Right. <laughs> right.
1: Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So.
2: So go ahead, Grayson. Um, the question though was, can can we do that? Right. Should we model ourselves after what he did? Um, Blake, what do you say?
1: With the specific given example, I would say
2: no. Should we do the same
1: with people like Creffle Dollar and T.D. Jakes? So should we, when Jack was going to Baptist College, should he have climbed the fence with his whip (laughs) and went over and started, you know, uh, driving them out? Um, I don't think so, because we don't have that. Like, we don't have, we have a very specific thing there with the money changers doing a direct interference with things that they were, that were commanded for worship okay that were actually preventative mm-hmm. uh they were putting up preventative measures where people would not be able to make and bring or you know not be able to bring sacrifices or that the sacrifices wouldn't be acceptable so now you have to buy a temple sacrifice which just so happens costs you know three four five times you know what what a normal you know a convenience type fee or something like that so you have like this direct command uh, of sacrifice, these guys are throwing up a direct barrier so that they can profit from it, and so Jesus cleanses the temple not once but twice. Um, I think if that was the if that was a one for one carryover for us, we would have had plenty of opportunities for example of it in the New Testament, uh, but yet we don't see that
0: taking place. I think there's some special authority too, with who's doing it. I mean, it's Jesus who is God in the flesh. Like, yes, follow him, emulate him, but there's some special significance here in that it's, it's his temple. Yeah. You know, I, I I think there's some, I don't know, maybe maybe that's a lesser point, but it's, it's, it's point-making like we need to
2: be careful not to,
0: uh, to assume too much. I ourselves. actually don't think
2: it's a lesser point. Um, so there's an age-old hermeneutical principle. Um, hermeneutics is just the method by which you study the Bible. And so um, the question then behind it is really, is that a prescriptive or a descriptive passage? Um, prescriptive would be, is this something that I ought to emulate? Is this a command in here that I ought to obey? Descriptive is just simply telling a story or giving the narrative, and there's a point in that. And I believe, hermeneutically, there's every reason to say it would be descriptive. That Christ is coming into the temple, he's had it up to high heaven, so to speak, with these money changers, and he's going to, as God himself, drive them from his Father's temple, because that's his whole business on earth, is to glorify the Father. And so he's seen the abuse of the, within the system, and I think there's, there's a comparison to be made on that, in terms of how, you know, we would not... Emulate the same behavior of the, you know, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or whomever is coming into the temple to do those things. Um, but as far as physically going in into Creffel Dollar's church or to T.D. Jakes's church, I'd say no. Um, I think the best way we could counteract what they're doing is to simply proclaim the truth of the gospel. For one, because these are false, you know, teachers. Um, but for two, to be able to showcase the perversity of the prosperity gospel and point them to the Christ who would have the same irateness today in their place of worship I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so none of that is to say that yeah. we shouldn't, you know, mark them out because we should. We shouldn't we should mark out. Yeah, we false should dressers. Absolutely. And I love what Grayson just said yep. of simultaneously giving the gospel because the gospel's going to do the heart work. Uh, and um
0: yeah. yeah. Okay, question 6. We picked up the pace pretty well here. Um, y'all mentioned in the second part of oh, this, this message, I'm sorry, this question comes from Dan Miller. Y'all mentioned in the second part of the church discipline uh, that our approach to and relationship with an individual removed by discipline ought to drastically change. What about those who voluntarily leave the church, specifically those who leave the reformed tradition and swim Tiber, Tiber River? I've said a few friends do so recently.
2: Yeah, um, so with this one, there's some particulars there. You guys are familiar with, with what he means by "swim the Tiber," right?
0: Yeah, it's go yep. Catholic, right? Yeah,
2: so at the heart of it yep. is somebody that's embracing a false gospel. Um, that's that's what I would say. I know you guys would say the same. Um, and so with that, I would say that they have they have literally abandoned the faith at that point, and right. um, and they should be whatever treated process, as an unbeliever. They should be, yeah. um, but they've also short shrifted any process of church discipline that would come upon somebody who's apostatizing, right? And so, you know, do you as a, a family member or a friend or whomever treat that person in the same manner as you would if that church discipline process was carried all the way through? Um, I would say, yeah, you treat them as an unbeliever, like Blake just said, because they are literally now abandoning the gospel. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. It's a tough one. Um, I've yeah. watched a few guys yeah. do it too.
1: Yeah. So leaving, leaving is not the, and I think we mentioned this before. Like leaving is not like the way of getting out of the consequences of church discipline. It just expedites it. <laughs> like it expedites yeah. it to the final yeah. stage. I mean, if you're going to, you know, apostatize, then it's you know, in effect, you are under church, this one in your church should carry that out, you know, to the end should still call you to repentance. And obviously if you're not, if you're going to choose to swim the Tiber, uh,
2: then it would be the same, I would say. Yeah. I'd I'd also throw in a qualification in one sense. Um, my, my qualification would purely be on the basis of the individual and just in the time that I knew them, could they articulate the gospel clearly? Right. Um, you you say the reformed tradition, so I'm gonna guess that they could and they could probably do it quite well. But there've been other people that I know that have they've flip flopped in between various traditions of the you know, the broader historic Christian church and by that I don't mean genuine believers, but just a Christian tradition. And not one you know, not not at any point could I actually pinpoint they understood the gospel. Um, so if that's the case, they've been an unbeliever the whole time and I'd still perhaps pursue that relationship depending on how open they were to being able to receive the gospel. But even then there'd be a point where it's, you know, worthy to move on if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's worth pointing out too, that the, the, the practice of church discipline, the ultimate goal is repentance to, to draw a comparison. Because we're, 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 if someone is doing this, they're leaving the church. We're making some assumptions that, um, faith was never genuine. So, any repentance that would come would come from, you know, regeneration. So treat them as an unbeliever, preach the gospel. Um, obviously if they're friends, Grace, and I think you alluded to this, there's special relationship considerations, right? I mean, you close friends, family members, that's going to be always a little different and nuance, but I think these are people that you want to just continue to speak truth to um, point towards point towards Christ and trust and pray, pray for them and, Trust the spirit
2: yeah. to do yeah. a work in the heart. Either way you stretch it, though, things would just change, and yeah, they're going to be different. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, number seven. Uh, this comes from our from a good from a friend of the podcast, David, David McIntyre. Not sure how to form this into a question, but I'd love to hear you guys talk about assurance of salvation. I believe it's something many people struggle with, and it's not something, in my experience, that is discussed much in the church.
2: It's a great question. Interestingly. Um, I was teaching the fundamentals of the faith class tonight, and we were actually talking about this very thing. We, The lesson was on the sovereignty of God, but what that ultimately boiled down to was that um, we can confidently rest in the assurance of our salvation, knowing that God has foreordained all of these things to take place for those who are genuinely in Christ. Um, there's There's different things that you could look to in terms of being able to You know, there should be an inspection of genuine fruit at some point in your walk if you're a Christian, and that's not saying your obedience saves you, but it is saying that genuine salvation results in obedience, so fruit should be there. But ultimately, what you're going to do every which way, and this is a very broad um, answer, but you're going to continue to go back to the basics of the gospel in the sense of being able to reorient in those basic truths that Christ died on behalf of sinners, and through his work on the cross, he has freed them up that they might be declared just before God, who is a holy and righteous judge, who now forgives them, gives them new life, gives them, you know, eternal life, essentially, or not essentially, but definitely. And uh, Christ himself rose from the dead. And if, as long as those bare facts are hoped in and believed, um, then we have every reason to have assurance that our sins are genuinely forgiven. And so my basic counsel to people is always go back to the very first thing that you believed and remind yourself of those simple truths and then start to apply all those different passages in terms of the indicative reality that's born out of that. So if you have genuine faith in Christ, what does Christ promise all throughout the book of John, but that he will not lose one whom the Father has given. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a, a huge, robust answer. Um, but that's my basic way of counseling people who tend to struggle with that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I'll add, too, if there's struggle, like if, if there's genuine concern that you don't have faith, like if this is this bothers me, I'm really worried about this. If there's struggle about not being in God's favor and forgiveness in Christ, I would say that's generally an indication of life. Because someone someone outside of God, not all the time, but someone outside of God's grace— someone saving grace, meaning they're not, they have, they want nothing to do with the gospel. They want nothing to do with church. Typically those people are, uh, you know, haters of God. Like they they want nothing to do with the church. They have no concern for their soul. Um They are content to, to be and live in sin. Uh, so I'd say if, if, if there's, str- if there's concern about assurance of salvation, that can often be an indicator of, of that, that level of concern can be an indicator uh, of, uh, of life. Yeah.
1: I mean, I would, I would agree with those things. I mean, generally if somebody comes to me and says, you know, how do I know that I'm saved? I kind of, there's kind of like a tripod, uh, in scripture, I think that, that holds, uh, assurance that first thing, uh, does the Holy spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are indeed, uh, a child of God is romans eight sixteen I mean which I do think is as simple as asking, Do I know Christ? You know yes or no, I mean, what is my only hope in life and death uh that I am not my own, but I belong to God? What is my only hope for salvation when I stand before God? uh, what is going to be my plea? I mean, the Christian is the one who says, Jesus, Jesus is my only plea. I have no good works. I have no good, you know, thing. I have nothing to stand on. And usually when people are asking this question, like, well, how do I know if I'm saved? Like I'm struggling with assurance. Usually, at least that's been my experience is it's because they've reached some rough stuff in their life. They've stumbled. There's been some sin. There's a particular particular. difficulty or spiritual depression that is going on and they're just asking like do I have it do I have it? I think we need to go back and ask does the spirit commune with my spirit that I am indeed uh, a child of God? Secondly, um, have you uh, this sounds a little weird but have you done the things that you were you're told to do I mean have you repented and believed <laughs> you know have you do you see your sins? As the things that are dragging you to hell, have you turned from your sins and have you asked Christ to save you? Do you believe in your heart that he died on the cross for you, that he was buried, that he rose again victorious, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and he has ascended and he is even now making petition for you? I mean, I think when you look at those things, when you ask a Christian that that's, that's struggling with assurance, usually the answer is yes, yes, I believe those things. Uh, and then usually the question comes up: Well, how do I know that I really believe it, and that I'm not just saying that I believe it? Again, I think that's where that Romans 8, uh, 16 through 18 kind of issue comes in. Uh, and then, of course, as grace mission, there's good works also. Um, we are Titus 2:14 says uh, that he has purified for himself a special people that are zealous for good works. And so all throughout scripture, we see that we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. And so I think you can kind of triangulate and look at those things. Is my only hope in Christ? Have Do I believe in Christ? Is the spirit communing with my spirit? And is there evidence of change? Like, do I love the Lord or do I hate the Lord? Do I love Christians or do I hate Christians? Uh, do I love righteousness or do I love worldliness? I mean, those are questions I would never... I, I think we have gotten... To the point, I'm on, you slide dog, you got me monologuing. Uh, <laughs> we've gotten to the point in a merit of like Western cultural Christianity where we've taken everything that you guys just said and everything that I just said, which is like soul work, right? Like things that take some thought and some searching and prayer and scripture reading. And we have boiled it down to, well, did you repeat the prayer? Did you walk the aisle? Did you super mean it? Yeah. Yep. Did you super mean it when the, the when you went up to the altar? And if you super meant it in your heart on this day, uh, when you walked the aisle, I mean, it is scary how many people, I believe, will stand before the judgment and be cast into hell because their confidence was not in Christ, but their confidence was that they walked an aisle. Uh, I found that coming from the Pacific Northwest, uh, very anti-christian to when i lived in the bible belt in uh the panhandle of florida is we were going door knocking and talking to people you would not believe the amount of people that we ran into who said the phrase i done did that oh so are you you know are you pursuing the lord are you you know fighting against sin are you going to church oh no no i don't do any of that stuff but when i was you know four i done did that that is terrifying, and what's more terrifying yeah. is that there are churches that would say that's good enough like that's good enough for your assurance of course you meant it your grandma wrote it in the back of her Bible that you asked uh Jesus to save you when you were two and a half years old that doesn't matter that you don't remember it doesn't matter you have no affection for Christ it doesn't matter that there's no heart change it doesn't matter any of those things Grandma wrote it in the family Bible, therefore you're good to go I'm getting fired up i'm getting yeah, anyway
0: yeah. <laughs> No, it's funny you say that. I, a, very, a very good friend of mine who's also a pastor, he, he, he shared the story with me once that when he was 10, 12, something like that, he was in his Sunday school class. And he said, how do I, how do I know that I'm saved? And his Sunday school teacher took his Bible, opened it up, and said, right here.
2: It says, yeah, here's the date that's that you're. <laughs> scary. That's a, that's a business. Especially
1: when you, when you read the testimony yeah. of so many believers who for months— Months worked through. I mean, I think of the conversion of of um, of Bunyan. I mean, I think his own testimonies. Like, it took months of digging and conviction and soul searching and and turmoil and all of these you know spiritual things that he's going through. Uh, imagine some guy just comes along and says, "Well, just you know, repeat this prayer and you're good to go." You gotta love the fruit of Finney. Great question,
0: David. Question the eight uh, is. It is a very good question. Is there a point where a local yes. congregation can get too big? And this comes from from a page, a Facebook page called Some of You Haven't Been to Church in a While and It Shows. That's the name of the yeah. Facebook. That's a great that's a great Facebook page. Uh, the answer is yes. Question nine. No, I mean really. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We we covered this.
1: We covered this in reasons to leave and reasons not to leave.
0: Yeah, we did. Um we we did we touched on it I, I i think if the big indicator for me is a church too big is it operating in such a way that there are members of the church disconnected with elders meaning there's there's not a personal relationship with the overseer the under shepherds the shepherd the elders right, right. they don't know you It's not happening um there, there's there's no it's so big that you can slip in and slip out. And if you're that big,
1: I would say definitely consider how are we how are we multiplying churches then? Like maybe we need to focus on taking a core group here of people who would pray about it, think about it and have it laid on their hearts to even move together and plan a church somewhere, you know. Which I think Grayson, you guys are in a church
2: plant. Uh yeah, oh well, we're in the infancy stages of it, yeah. so um our whole model is that little well, they call it the umbilical model essentially, but basically we go off um, share resources, share everything else in between, mm-hmm. and then cut the cord, so to speak so that one day it's a fully autonomous local church right. but you know lord willing we're we're right in the beginning stages of that where we're gonna actually go and and launch yeah. amen
0: all right, Blake uh, you monster. I'm gonna give you number nine.
2: number nine (laughs) we should uh we we should be intentional about keeping this one short because i know we're all no no no, we're all going to disagree on it in one sense or another i think but we could actually take this as a like if we go back towards our own differences and things like the lord's supper baptism all that i think we should hit at some point because this is a subject
1: where we truly have three different views yeah, and if we can get through question nine, <laughs> maybe. maybe we'll have a season. This could two. make it or break it, people. You ready? This is huge. The pregnant pause, the anticipation. It's terrible. I hope it will last. <laughs> question number nine from Kristen Kava. Thank you for this question, Kristen, because this is um it's 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 something to think about for sure. Wine versus grape juice in communion should wine be proved or is that quote unloving if so should grape juice be provided alongside or is that unlawful
2: um short answers go i have no problem with doing them side by side
0: i don't either fruit of the vine wine grape juice i think it's okay i think wine is the more correct interpretation because there's a lot of significance in wine and <laughs> <laughs> Blake's <face. laughs> like I said if we this get where this we need question video we'll make podcast. a season two um yeah uh Blake's just shaking his head um I think wine is is more biblical but I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have
2: grape juice alongside so that'll be my short answer you and I are actually are closer than uh we're pretty much on the same page with that. I think how we view the slapper would be different. Right.
1: But right. That's where you're different. To yeah. Me. Um yeah. I would say that juice is absolutely the preferred. Absolutely. And why
2: would you say that? Because I'm a
1: teetotaler. So we can have I've mentioned this before. We and I think this would make a good a good podcast. Uh but I don't wanna you see the you okay, I don't wanna blow it up.
2: All right. Yeah, he's already, He's already like, wait a minute. I'm about to go. No, again. no, no.
1: I don't want I don't want to blow it up. This is something that we have a disagreement on. Uh I know I realize I have a minority view uh on that. And so I'm happy to uh have that conversation. But we just You can check it out on our premium <laughs> pre- on our premium content. <laughs> Great question. Yeah, we we would all agree, though, that uh, you need to that there needs to be um, uh, the elements. We don't we don't have the right to just substitute the elements for whatever we want uh you know the the classic Arizona iced tea and skittles uh thing that was going around when that one kid that thing happened with the anyway but you know what i mean like but we can't just say like okay this is going to be you know this week we're going to have brownies and coffee for communion um that's not or for the lord's table that's not that that actually destroys the picture because we do believe that there is a there's a picture in the elements Um, in the purified, unsoiled, undefiled blood of Christ.
2: All right. (laughs) Question number 10. This next question comes from Anonymous. Do church-disciplined consequences apply to family members? Example given of parents who are members of the church supporting a daughter who is openly gay and shown support on Facebook. Uh, The short answer to this one is Yes. So um, yeah. no matter what relationship you have with an individual, if they are under church discipline, those consequences still take place. Um, that makes things all the more difficult for you. And if, if that's what is going on right now for you, I'm sincerely sorry, because I know that's just not fun at all and particularly hard. Um, but church discipline is a manner in which it just continues to play out. Uh, depending on what stage you're in, I'm reading that question differently, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I shortened
2: it. Okay. So, let me, so are you it reading it paragraph. as... I'm reading it as... Now they, is there, they are going to do church discipline? Do church discipline
1: consequences apply to family members? So, is the, so I'm reading the question as you have parents that are in your church, a, a couple that are in your church, members of the church, and they are openly supporting on Facebook the... Uh, the homo the sin of homosexuality in their daughter. So, so that's how I'm reading it. Yes,
0: yes, and, in, and let me let me clarify. And you're correct, Blake. In the situation, because again, I shortened this for the podcast. Which now that I'm having to explain it next time, I won't do that because that's my own fault. Uh, but you, you're that's what happened. And in this case, this person, uh, if I'm re- remembering correctly, reached out to their pastor and was basically told. Um, they didn't do anything wrong because they're it's not the online. Ones. It doesn't
1: count, baby.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like and they, yeah, it's like a Facebook post, whatever. Yeah, if there's
1: an open, if there's an open zealous support of sin, whether it's in person or whether it's on Facebook or something like that, then that needs to be addressed. Obviously, I think we're all we would yeah. all be in agreement there. Um, particularly if this is being celebrated, and it's not just us picking on homosexuality. It's it's any of this stuff. I mean, you know, so happy that our daughter moved in with her boyfriend today. I mean, it'd be the same. it would be the same kind of thing. Um, yeah. There is just a little nuance I think that should be made is that there's a difference between supporting uh, someone's sin and having a relationship with them. So like these parents, they could have a relationship with their daughter that is not supportive of her lifestyle, Okay, so it's not all a package deal, yeah. I think like can they still have you know conversations with their daughter? Can they still eat dinner with their daughter? Can they still call their daughter to repentance? Can they still voice that it's a, that it is a unbiblical uh, you know
2: lifestyle that she's living? I mean, yeah, I would say, right. Would you be on that, Grayson? Oh yeah, absolutely that's that's how I was taking this was that the parents are the ones supporting it. Um, and so that I'd say is flatly unbiblical and needs to be addressed. If they're, if, if your, if your idea though of supporting it is that they're still trying to maintain a relationship with them, um, and yet they're speaking against it, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be what is the case here, but if, if they are speaking against it and they're still trying to have them over for dinner and all that kind of stuff, it's like they're, they're trying to love their daughter, um, uh, And there's going to be ways in which we can show them grace in the midst of that, because they might make some decisions that we would disagree with. But at the heart of it, they're still saying, no, this is wrong. This is sin. You need to repent and come to trust in Jesus. Um, There's a vast difference between that and support.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well said. All right, number 11. High course in the chaos. Hope you guys are doing well. Question from the podcast. I'm preaching on Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, so your episode on church discipline is timely. I'm just wondering in regards to verses 18 through 20, if you would say that the authority that Christ gives to the church to have authority over binding and releasing is in praying to God to support an excommunication. I'm not sure what else it could be if not that. If this is the case, is the agreeing in any matter and being answered, verse 19, only in regards to a church discipline issue like asking God to restore... An outcast who has sinned but repented. And I, if we want to, I... I yeah, read it. Put down Matthew 18 there. Um, yeah, so, so I'll go read it. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. I'll read all of it. Um, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If he doesn't, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. If he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything and they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So again, the question. Let me go back to that because that was a lot. Um, in regards to those verses, would you say that the authority that Christ gives the church to have a th- the authority that Christ gives to the church to have authority over binding and releasing is in praying to God to support an excommunication?
2: I think that's the so primary question. I would answer uh, based on the verbiage here, and I'm this is me being quibbling with the way it's phrased. So. If you don't mean it this way, I'm truly apologetic. Um, I'd say no. Um, And here's what I mean by that. So when you say that the authority of the binding and releasing is in praying to God to support an excommunication, the way that the passage actually breaks out is that it's in the past perfect, meaning that God has already made this decision in heaven And when church discipline takes place, all that is is a revelation on earth, therefore, of what's already taken place in heaven. And so nothing's happening in our praying or anything like that. It's not even in prayer, necessarily. It's that as the elders come together and have moved to that final stage of church discipline, um, God has already rendered that decision in heaven. And therefore, we are simply carrying that out, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and again, the keys being the power to share the gospel with to grant the gospel and admission of the gospel um at that point where we're stepping back and and you know at the end of the process so and locking the door so to speak through the proclamation of the gospel to this person that that's how i would yeah say it. yeah i'd agree yeah okay all right good question final question we got time for one more yeah go what for it. say okay um <clears throat> So this was a new one to me, all right. I didn't, I didn't. As a Presbyterian, I didn't know this was a thing. The Baptist had to educate me a little bit. My parents, uh, this this one comes in a message, so it'll be anonymous. My parents have fallen prey to the teaching of hyper dispensationalism, specifically Les Feldick. One reason they struggle to understand or even attempt to understand the arguments against hyper dispensationalism is because one, they do not understand the importance of a good hermeneutic. And two, they distrust biblical scholars and theologians. They believe them to be men, just like they hear themselves talk. Denominations are, quote unquote, man's religion, but not God. So the question is, with that with that kind of preamble, what sort of resources can I use for myself or to offer them to help them move past these issues and begin to see the weaknesses in hyper-dispensationalism? So again, I'm a, I'm a good, good Presbyterian. I knew what dispensationalism is clearly. I did not know there was hyper dispensationalism, uh, so Blake and uh, Grayson, before we recorded this, had to explain to me what that was. So I'm not going to answer this question because I learned this was a thing about fifty-six, <laughs> or, <so> I guess <laughs> sixty-one minutes ago. <laughs> so I'll let uh, Blake and Grayson. All right, Blake, go ahead. Yeah, so basically,
1: you,
2: you gave a good definition. Yeah,
1: so basically, my understanding of um, the hyper-dispensationalist view is it is an extreme, so it's an extreme view of grace uh, that essentially neuters large portions of scripture and calls them not applicable uh, to Christians and so uh, hyper dispensationalists that I have dealt with before would say things like uh, the gospels, for example, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the commands of Jesus uh, that those were actually for those specific that specific audience. Uh, things like the Great Commission uh, were for the apostles, but not for us. Um, the uh, Grayson was when Grayson was talking about it, it was kind of uh, even the even the uh, the detail of that, you know, the church begins after Acts, uh, so it's really a heavy focus on, like, Pauline, the Pauline letters, um, there's, again, my experience with it has been uh, that it's a, it is an ultra that it's an ultra grace kind of aspect so you would never bring in like even things like the moral law repentance uh, doesn't really have a place uh in that area it's super weird and it really does smack of uh it's very it's very culty um and then of course with les feldick um even saying everybody else got it wrong you know nominations are wrong uh you know I've got the proper interpretation, unique in history. Um, Again, because you don't see a hyper-dispensationalist view playing out anywhere in church history. And so I would say, I would say, um, I was also made aware the other day that my catchphrase is, I would say, and I just said it (laughs) like four times. And I told myself, I promised myself I wasn't going to say it. And
2: here I am. You know, I didn't say mine once. What is yours? You really hit the nail on the head. Oh, got him. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> You've got a
1: lot more control, Grayson. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. But as
1: far as resources go, I don't have, I, I'm, I'm lamenting not getting this question until recently because this is a serious issue. Like it is it is a serious error. Um, to take scripture and to cut it up and say that certain parts are essentially useless. It's also very scary when you have uh, a, mi- a very minority branch saying, we've got it, everybody else has, has got it wrong. Uh, I am sure that there are resources online uh, to help you through that. It's such a small, it's such a minority view um, that... Those resources may be kind of hard to come by, but again, one of the graces of living in our day and age is the internet is full of all kinds of um, things that could be helpful in that regard. This is going to sound like a very spiritual
2: answer, and I don't mean it in that way at all. I don't ever mean to be um, spiritual, but this is going to no, sound No, no, no. It sounds right. like that's sort of spiritual where somebody's like, hey, can you help find me a resource? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, the Bible. Just go to the bottom. yeah. Um, well... Earnestly, in this case, simply because of their trepidation to weigh into anything scholarly, I think handing them a book is going to to be counterintuitive in many ways, because they're going to look at at it and just dismiss it. I'm thinking books for
1: Anonymous, though, for the child of these two people. Yes, okay, for them. It'll help equip them, them, understand the position, and then
2: counterpoints to the position, sure. um, For them, there's not... I don't think I've run across a, an actual printed book then. Um, I know that Monergism has some stuff on it, monergism.com, and then also uh, gotquestions.com has some stuff on it as well that's pretty helpful. They're broader overviews. You might also look into Christian apologetics ministry. I think it's called CARM. Um, they've got some really good stuff, so they might have some sections on there as well. Those are just three websites where i think you'll find more of a popular level um, helpful kind of breaking down of what it is and how to address it at the end of the day um, i'm a big fan of taking people's own texts and working them against them and so what i mean by that is simple so like if i engage with somebody who's an arminian right i i hold to a calvinistic doctrine i will actually have them pick their best passages and this is all um, freely stolen from my own pastor, and I will sit down and go through those passages and we'll look at the text together and I'll just, we'll exegete it. And what I'll actually get them to do over a period of time, at least if they're honest, and we'll say what's in the passage, um, is that that passage doesn't mean what they're now making it to mean. And so I would do similar things in this position if I In that position myself. Um, I would just go to those passages and say let's look at the context and let's actually look at the passage itself and we'll take it apart and break it down verse by verse and every bit of it. But what I'm doing all the while is asking them questions on what does the text say rather than telling them what I believe it says or having them tell me what they believe it says. I'm already cutting past all of it simply for the sake of saying let's just look at the text Uh, Because if we can't do that, then I don't think I can have a genuine conversation with them, because that's that's all I have at the end of the day. And what I want them to do is to look at the text, and at at the very end of it, if they're still convinced of their position, and yet they look at that text and say it doesn't say what they believe it said, now they have one last text they can go to. And then we just do it until we've gone through all their different favorite verses.
1: You know, your your big task, though, with your parents is going to be getting them to see that all of Scripture is good for us today. Um, yep. You know, when it gets to things, like, I'm sure you've had the conversation, you know, the baptism conversation. The hyper-dispensationalists would say that there's, the baptism is not for today, Um because it's not, you know, Paul didn't come to baptize after all. So baptize baptism is its own thing, which is not for us. Um, convincing them, convincing them that the gospels, that the early parts of acts, uh, and all of those things, uh, are good for us today are going to be a key factor. And I wish I had a, a simple recipe to give you on, well, this is how you, this is how you go about doing that. Um, but unfortunately i don't i don't have that so so there's my yeah well yeah. we don't have an answer yeah yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so there you go now and and maybe this goes without saying but you know you do these things and pray uh, you know at, at the end of the day um you know one man waters uh you know one man plans to see all these things but it'll be the lord who gives the increase so uh pray that the lord would give would open eyes to see see the truth as you work through them, but be patient, pray, continue. Like I think Grayson's advice is really good. Continuing to pray. I'm sorry, work through them, uh, in a methodical way through the verses that they, you know, maybe tout for lack of a better word to,
2: at the same time, don't lose heart. Um, remember that God works through the spirit and his word. And so where you and I may fail in all these different ways and where somebody might be just stiffened against us, um, the power still belongs to God and his word. And so continue to trust in the authority of God's word and continue to bring that to bear because you don't know when or if the spirit will be pleased to finally just let things click into place for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well said. Well, that's we are out of time and out of questions. So we did it, guys. We completed season one of a podcast. I'm excited for season two. Yeah, yeah. So Uh, So for listener, if you've still listening, uh, we are brainstorming ideas for season two actively. We've got some good ideas, uh, but likely we'll take a few weeks off and kind of reset, but we'll be back probably after the first of the year with, uh, with season two, perhaps we'll have a couple bonus episodes scattered in there at some point on, uh, you know, things that come up um, as, as, as it does. So, uh, thank you again for listening. We'll see you guys next season, Lord willing.
2: We'll see you in a whole year. Hey. You gotta, you gotta throw it up with the day. Yeah, right. See you next year. <laughs> <laughs>